Mike Genslin, a successful author who enjoys worldwide acclaim, debunking supernatural phenomena before he checks into the Dolphin Hotel, that is, ignoring the warnings of the hotel manager, he learns the meaning of real terror when he spends the night in a reputedly haunted room. <laughs> Another great episode of Boo Review. Well, it's it's a good one. It is going to be a good one today. And uh, <laughs> what we're going to be talking about. And by the way, before I even begin, I thank you all so much for the positive feedback. Um, it's been amazing. Just to throw that out there. We're going to talk about, I don't don't know, if you live in Baltimore, I'm sure you probably heard of Black Aggie. A way back when, today's section misspelled the name of Civil War Union General Felix Angus. (coughs) Agnes. The sun regrets the errors, of course. It's the time of the year when a barking dog late at night is listened to a little more closely than usual. Eerie shadows given a start of the mere rattling of shutters by the wind forces of the mind race ahead. Now listen, it's Halloween, the time of the year when costumed ghosts, goblins, witches, and Frankensteins take to the streets to go trick-or-treating or crowds. The church halls for parties. But just as much as a part of Halloween is the telling and retelling of the carefully crafted ghost stories, despite the narrator's hyperbole, these tales from the crypt and the netherworld of restless spirits can raise the hair on a listener's neck no matter what their age. Two Baltimore chestnuts that no doubt will be whispered around darkened rooms and flickering fireplaces tonight will be the tale of blonde hitchhiker named Sequin and the tale of Black Aggie. The statue that once marked the grave of General Felix Angus and his wife in Druid Ridge Cemetery near Pikesville, along Route 40 East, if you used to see a tall, pretty blonde hitchhiker wearing low-cut, blue-squinting, sequined cocktail dress, don't be surprised. She is the subject of one of Baltimore's known tales of the supernatural. And she has been with us for many years, reported the Evening Sun in 1976. It was a tale told by an eastern Baltimore Sunday school teacher about a thin girl with violet eyes and blonde hair who used to wait outside of church and pick up teenage boys. The whole community gossiped about her and people said she was completely immoral said the newspaper. 
one Sunday she sat in the last pew because she heard the pastor was dis distributing clothes to the poor and her dress was, was soiled and old. As the pastor opened a barrel and removed a blue sequined party dress, she walked down the aisle and removed it from her head, his hand. Thereafter, she never wore anything but that party dress in all kinds of weather, night and day. Later that winter, the woman was found frozen to death on a back street wearing that blue sequined dress. Ten years later, two college students were driving to a dance along Route 40 when they spotted an attractive blonde girl wearing a blue cocktail dress trimmed in sequins. They stopped and picked her up and took her to the dance. She told everyone her name was Sequin. She was never without a dance partner. After the dance, the two boys drove her back to East Baltimore home when she complained of the chilly night air. One of the boys moved her coat and draped it over her shoulders. Forgetting the coat, they returned to the house the next day and were greeted by an elderly woman. Sequin? You must be old friends. She's been dead for ten years, she told the stunned boys. Thinking they had the wrong address, the woman reassured them that it was indeed the right address and the girls nicknamed Sequin once had lived there. Her real name was Betty. She was buried in the old cemetery six blocks away, she said. Entering the cemetery, they quickly found the young woman's grave. They found a small stone where the woman said it would be. On it was engraved simple, simply, Betty. And folded across the mound in front of the stone was the boy's top coat, reported the evening sun. That's just the first one. That's about the sequin. Now, that does tie in a black aggie. It's all from the same cemetery. But at as early as 1950, a newspaper account relates tales of nocturnal visits by teenagers to Black Aggie. A copy by a sculptor, Edward of Augustus St. Gooden's Grief, which marks the grave of Mrs. Henry Adams in Washington's Rock Creek Cemetery. There's lots of stories about it. Pikesville policeman told the Evening Sun in 1950, The kids say... Its eyes shine in the dark and the things like that. But that's a lot of who struck John. Or was it? Now before Angus descendants removed Black Aggie from the cemetery and donated her in 1967 to the National Collection of Fine Arts at the Smithsonian Institution, a visit to the jet black shrouded angel that kept her grief-stricken watch over the lonely cemetery was almost obligatory for 1950s-era Baltimore teens. Black Aggie was looking for them, too, reported the newspaper. As seen by the visitors, her eyes glowed briefly red, and a beckoning hand moved slightly on the arm of her throne. For the intruders, it was a rite of passage. Anyone brave enough to spend the midnight hour and Black Aggie's lap was a man enough to join their fraternity. And the new brother to be joked bravely as his companions returned to their houses, leaving him in Angie's, Angie's, Aggie's chilly embrace. Other legends claim that no fertilizer known to mankind could grow grass in her shadow. Persons who have returned the gaze of those glowing eyes have been struck blind 
young mother she walked too close by midnight has suffered stillbirths. Countless strollers have quickened their step at the sound of wails of pain and clanking chains. Even John Hitchcock, who was born and raised in the cemetery, and whose father had been superintendent there, told the son in 1966, I have patrolled the cemetery hundreds of times and walked right by the statue at midnight. It's never moved or rolled its eyes or done anything unusual. Mm-hmm. Denial. The reason the grass wouldn't grow, he explained, was due to the hordes of teenagers who trampled it. Anyone who goes out there to look at the grave at midnight is out of his loving mind, he told the newspaper. Or were they? No. No, I probably wouldn't do it. Uh, for one, I'm, I don't know. I don't really go to cemeteries. Uh, I have a disrespect, I feel. But uh, that's just me. Now, haunted house, abandoned house, maybe. But uh, cemetery-wise, I mean, if there was something to go wrong, I mean, you kind of ask for it. Now, moving on. You already know what time it is. It is time for Cryptid of the week. Oh yeah, the Krypton of the week. Now, I just love Krypton of the week. It's just always so good. Anyways, I got a couple here for you actually. I got a, uh, you know, the winner, of course, and I got the uh, runner-up. Let's, uh, let's get involved. Now, the Jing Lot. Don't sound like much, but if you were to Google this up right now, it's pretty freaking creepy, to be honest. Anyway, now, according to Indonesian legend, the Jing Lot was an ascetic who wanted to learn the way to internal life. He was a hermit who worships demons to attain mystical powers and ability. Now, it originated in West Java, Indonesia. Before the time of Islam, it is an occult practice in Javanese and Sudanese culture, which believed to provide immunity and strength to its owner. The practice still prevails in modern times, and though, the owner of uh, Garong and believed to be able to melt or melt his opponent with just one touch. That's a that's just one touch. Ding! You're melted. Now, apart from you know providing immunity, it's also said to bring longevity or even immortality to its owner. They say if a person with great supernatural powers meditate in a certain cave. They'll become a jing lot themselves. In other retellings of the legend, it's said the earth itself rejects the corpse of a deceased caringer practitioner, and that shriveled corpse becomes the jing lot. Now, the jing lot's about the height 
of an adult's forearm. It looks like a petrified creature with long hair, fangs, and talons. Now its arms are usually crossed over its chest. And today, a replica Jinglon can be bought at online or specialty shops. I ain't gonna bring that in my house. Seriously, look, look that up. That's absent. I'm not bringing that in my house. Kids wouldn't sleep. Kids are already afraid of uh, Minecraft. Yeah, you go. <laughs> no. Now, though many of these modern Jinglons are not the real deal, it's uh, been accepted by collectors and believers that the replica Jinglon under the powerful Dugan, or, you know, to call it Shaman, can also perform the Atena test. Yeah, it's, clo it's close enough. People who keep a Jinglon does it primarily for three reasons. One is to attain wealth and prosperity for this business. And the other two are for sinister reasons, like causing harm to an enemy or increasing one's spiritual power to battle other practitioners. Can you imagine a bunch of witch doctors? A bunch of witch doctors with these? I've got two. You've got one. I mean, I don't know why they had that accent. They're from Indian. 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 India. But, whatever. Now, if you want to bring your wealth, you must perform a ritual that involves an offering and place of money in front of it. Now, let it see that the object that you desire. For other purposes like revenge or causing harm to a person, all you need is a picture of the person you want. The Jinglot will cause harm to it. Now, the Jinglon is known to have other spiritual properties. Mm-hmm. To help extract otherworldly items like mystical stones, rings, and etc. To have the Jin's fear as if you are their king. At times, used to make love potions or love spells. Or to, you know... To counter any black magic attacks by your enemies or rivals. Now, an occult practitioner trained in specific crafts is able to bind a jinglot to his will. But such a burden is not one that comes with a price. Once you possess a jinglot, you have to abide by an agreement between you and the jinglot. To de-announce your religious, faith, beliefs, and practices, perform meditation, and offer blood sacrifices. Now, it is common, though, for Jinglot owners to feed them with animal blood or offer a sacrifice. Now, should you fail to do so, the Jinglot will harm you and your loved ones, and it's said that it will tie your soul, preventing you from going on to the next life. Wow. Now, the Jinglot also has two different genders. For male practitioners... It will attain a female jinglot, while female practitioners will attain a male jinglot. Now, jinglots can also come in different forms. While most of them are humanoid in appearance, there are those with half fish and half snake features. Now, Islamists believe that the jinglots are actually um, malevolent, malevolent jinns. That has taken this form so that it could be physically seen or touched by humans. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. 
Now, in some retelling of the Jinglot experiences, said that the, that the uh, bathing of a Jinglot in blood will cause it to animate. And no, no, so far, no, absolutely not buying this thing. Now, others say that the Jinglot does not animate, but when you put it in a glass of blood near it, the blood will appear to drain away as if someone's drinking it. Probably the Jinglot. Now, some say the Jinglot comes alive and consumes the blood when it's alone. According to the uh, metal practitioner, metal, metal, he's a metal, the medical practitioner, the Jinglot may, may be made from ordinary materials. The price at which these objects are sold depends on how real they look, though they are generally, generally inexpensive. On the other hand, the object may also be made using animal feces. I'm oh, sorry. <clears throat> Animal feces. Hey, uh, what's yours? Mine's cow dung. Yours? Oh, mine's a horse poop. You just make it from like barn yard animals? Pig poop? Anyway. Thing probably, no. <laughs> Stupid. Um, jinglots made from this material are believed to be more, uh, efficient. And therefore, they would fetch a much higher price on the market. As of the time of this writing, you can find five jinglots on sale, ranging from $150 to $450. And you can have some poop sculpture for $450. Now, the results of this study, it was published in the Malaysian Journal of Medical Sciences, found that the hair particles from a sample of an allergic jinglot was actually of human origin. The study uh, disapproved in the particular case. The claim of the jinglot is a rare animal species that lives deep in the jungles of Indonesia. Real jinglots are extremely hard to find, and those that have seen it claim the immense power that radiates from it. Now, fortunately, the ones these days do not have the same power. That doesn't mean the items are not infused with negative entities. The power dukan may still tie the jinns and other spirits to the object to perform similar tasks. Most buyers probably won't know the difference. <laughs> so look, the only thing you really got to do is um, pretty much just go find, uh, I guess I'll go out in the field and wait till a cow's ready and grab all of its poop and mold myself a, uh, a jinglot. See, that's why I need to start making some money. I'll sell jinglots. Infused with uh, cow poo. Now, moving on to the runner-up here. Now, this one, this one caught me. I, you know, when you read this, you're like, what? But this is a uh, hungry grass. That's right, hungry grass. Now, hungry grass, it's, a, it's, it's in Irish mythology also known as fairy grass, and it's a cursed patch of grass. Anyone walking on it supposedly doomed to insatiable hunger and a permanent state of weakness. Now, Harvey, whoever Harvey is, um, unexplained there, okay, so Harvey, he suggests that the hungry grass is cursed by the proximity 
of an unshriven corpse, or maybe a leprechaun. William Carlton's story indeed suggests that the uh, fairies plant the hungry gla- glass. We'll, we'll get there, guys. I promise. This is uh, <laughs> Carlton's story indeed suggests that the fairies plant the hungry grass. According to Harvey, this myth may relate to beliefs formed in the Irish potato famine of the 1840s, actually caused by fungi. Now, in Margaret's McDonald's, McDonald's, can you tell I'm ha- like hungry? In Margaret McDougall's letter, the phrase hungry grass is uh, by analogy. We're not going to get there today, are we? It's hungry grass, and it's a myth used to describe hunger pains. An alternative version of the hungry grass story relates that anyone walking through it is struck by temporary hunger. To safely cross through, one must carry a bit of food to eat along the way, such as a sandwich or several crackers and some beer. (laughs) You know, that variation of story sucks. Let's go with this one here. The Irish Famine. Or the Great Hunger. It was the disease that made the hungry grass debatable whether or not it was real or just superstition. People thought the hungry grass just doesn't eat people, it eats crops too. It wasn't always called, though, hungry grass. People thought that the spirit of a man was in fact eating people. See, now this one sounds a lot better than, I'm just hungry. Let me get a sandwich with crackers and beer. That one's, no, this is way better. You know, a man that eats people, totally better. Now the word fear in Irish is both man and grass. So hungry man came to be because they feared him. It was said that if you give relief to hungry man, you enjoy unfailing prosperity, even during the worst periods of famine and death. And no one knew what the hungry man looked like, but to Ireland, they may have given him an appearance of some sort, like a leprechaun. Now, after this, Maxwell, who wrote Wild Sports of the West, made an assumption and called the famine Hungry Disease, which was made by fairies or was grown over by a corpse. Hungry grass was eventually that it was really called because certain grass you stepped on made you faint and kill over. Now this happened to many farmers and fishermen. Now Hungry Hill. Some have said the Hungry Hills where the Hungry Grass has originated from. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, Hungry Grass, it grew on Hungry Hill. You know, located in the uh, hungry origin of Ireland. Now, the first person that ventured on the hill was never seen again. (laughs) All right. People were afraid to even go by the hill. Nevertheless, someone else eventually got to go up the hill and lived. A young fisherman that came to Ireland wanted to fish there. The ocean was behind Hungry Hill. So in the morning, the fisherman forgot to eat breakfast, so he thought he would eat on the way to the ocean. He brought an apple and sandwich for lunch. He got the apple out and started eating it. 
As he got to the hill, people started yelling not to go up the hill, but he didn't listen. As he was climbing, the grass on the hill wiggled almost like a snake and wrapped around him. He was still eating, and every time he took a bite, it would fall off of him. When the, sorry, um, when he got to the shore, the other fishermen told that the hill was said to kill people. He then put two and two together, and uh, came to the conclusion that if you ate while in the grass, you wouldn't fall ill. Hmm. Smart man. Now the fairies were ferocious, and the plant-hungry grass everywhere. Some people brought food with them wherever they went. Others were skeptic and eventually fell into their doom. The famine had eventually stopped when people built a wall around Hungry Hill. If the wall was to ever fail, the hungry grass may come back again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> A dang hungry grass, man. So, I mean, so really you need to be scared about Hungry Hill. In, you know, and what's scary about the whole thing is that they don't define what hungry grass looks like. So, I mean, you build a wall and you got grass, you mean, like, is it all dirt around this town? I mean, if that's, if that's true, people are just falling and dying. I would have nothing but dirt. I would never see a weed or any kind of grass near my house. There's no way. <laughs> and that is the, uh, the great cryptids, um, of the week here. Like I said, how do you give a combo, um, you know, I like the Jing lot a lot just because I found out now I could be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. Or some call it entrepreneur. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Whatever. Anyways, moving on here. Now, this freaking guy. I don't, I don't know how to take it. His name is uh, Whitley Striver, or Strieber, sorry. Anyways, um, mm, I mean, you can judge for yourself. Um, to me, it, I feel like he's in it to win it, and it's uh, all about the money. I mean, he's got best-selling books. Yeah, it's not like a typical guy that's uh, seen something or had an abduction. You know, it's, I don't know. You can You can make it up for yourself here. Listen up real quick. The Breakthrough. He is Whitley Strieber. There is the book. It is published by Beach Tree Books, a division of William Morrow. And it is a continuation of his enormous bestseller, Communion. A continuation how, Whitley? Well, it's not really a continuation. What happened to me was, after I finally realized that this probably was real, I find in the sense that they were the planet. Well, people something that was non-human that was intelligent and that was seemed to be I don't know from another planet I I would guess so where else I mean but uh, uh, I turned toward it and I started trying to 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 challenge it to get through my fear and over a period of months I formed a relationship with them that I believe could be a template almost for uh, almost as if they have one end of a phone and we've had two wires 
Now, if we start trying to have this relationship, we'll have a phone, too. Yeah, well, I'm just going to come out and say it. He sounds like a douche. But anyway, before I read um, his encounter, this is just a kind of, I don't know, this shows his credibility. It's kind of uh, iffy. Then I'll go back to, you know, what he's known for, which is the visitors in his book. Now, this is called The Whitman Massacre. Now, Strieber wrote that having told friends over the years that he had witnessed the University of Texas Tower shooting in Austin, Texas, on August 1st, 1966, when he had, in fact, not even been on campus that day. You know what I mean? So, right there, that, that one line... I mean, he's telling about his eyewitness of the University of Texas shooting, and he's not even, he wasn't even on campus. He wasn't even there. Now, for years, I've told being present at the University of Texas when Charles Whitman went on a shooting spree in the Tower of 1966, but I wasn't there. For years, I've explained my sudden departure by saying that I couldn't stand the place after the Charles Whitman sniper incident. Truth was, I could have remained after that incident. It was my secret terror that drove me away. Now, Strieber presents his claim to witness the Whitman shooting and uh, communion in the context of alien abduction screen memories. So apparently when they're doing this, you know, trying to recover his, uh, through hypnosis, trying to recover his um, memories, he's like, oh, wait a minute, the Whitman massacre, you know. Whatever, dude. Um, Express and Puzzlement had uh, even repeated the false claim over the years. In two interviews prior to the communion, however, Strieber described in graphic detail what he um, purposely witnessed. In 1985 interview with Douglas Winter published in Faces of Fear, Strieber described, I had just had a... Remember, he was not there, by the way. Okay, so this is what he envisioned. This is what he felt after his memory came back, that uh, it was missing in time, that he actually was there. Whatever. I had just had a Coke. I was walking from the student union to the uh, academic center, which was an open-shelf library near the tower, when I heard a sharp bang that echoed off the university co-op across the street behind me. And the reason I'm alive today is that I didn't turn around. I thought I was coming from the tower. Maybe I saw some movement out of the corner of my eye. All the people in front of me thought the same came to the co-op in front of us, not the tower behind. The next thing I saw was a little boy on a bicycle coming toward me, and his head just exploded. I didn't hear that one. I knew then it was coming from the tower. The other people all took cover, shielded from the co-op, but left them exposed to the tower. They were all killed, shot. I ran to a little retaining wall about three feet high, which was near the base of the tower building, and 20 yards from it, I lay down there. He shot two girls in the stomach behind me, 30 feet away. And they were lying there in the grass, screaming, begging, and pleading for help, trying to crawl along. One girl's legs wouldn't work. The other one was vomiting pieces of herself out of her mouth. I could smell the blood and the odor of their stomachs. That was their stomachs and their colons. We get it. We get it. Streber, man. The smell was horrible coming out of these poor kids, two young co-eds. And he did that, and he did that to get me and the other guy who was hiding behind the embankment to come out. I stayed there 
I was sick with dread watching them die, knowing that that gun was waiting. The other guy suddenly went out and tried to pull one of them and got shot in the head and killed. Whitman just shot the top of his head off. I stayed right where I was for a long, long time until I saw them with my own eyes bringing Whitman's body out. The ambulance men came up to me and said, you can come out now, he's dead. But I would not move until I saw him. Now, and critics including panelists on the British television discussion program After Dark questioned Strieber about the statements in communion about not having been at the Whitman shooting. Strieber announced that in his latest book, Transformation, he had changed his mind and decided he had witnessed the shooting. Despite the according to public information, there was no little boy on a bicycle that was killed by and Whitman that day. Further, according to Ed Conray in his report of communion, Strieber's mother stated during an interview that Strieber had been in Austin the day of the shooting, but not on campus. See, this guy makes money um, from his books. You know, I mean, he, he's, in the, he's made the communion book, and in that, you know, it's called the Whitman Massacre, and he goes in, in, in vague detail of what happened. And that the, the, the people were shot, you know, yelling, carrying on, and he's like the sniper. For one, if it's a person trying to cause pain, you think he just cares about one person, he's going to go for anybody. You know, but, the, but, but Streber made it about himself. You know, he's like uh, the guy, you know, he was, uh, he did that to me, the other guy, to get us out of the embankment. You know what I mean? Like he's just like focused on two people. And um, another thing that doesn't make sense was he said the ambulance men came up to me and said, you come out now, he's dead. But I would not move until I saw him. You, you know what I mean? I, I, you can't believe it. Like I said, and then he, he states in the Streber, Streber, he states in the Whitman Massacre, you know what I mean, that he was there. And it, it, I mean, even his own mother stated during the interview that he's, he was in Austin when it happened, but he wasn't on campus, so all that stuff has, has no power to it. That's the reason why I read that first, because I want you to understand what kind of person we're dealing with here. And I told you, he sounded like a douche on the interview with Larry King. Now, in that same book, here is The Visitors. Now, this is his abduction story. Now, we, now you've seen from the Whitman Massacre how good he is with stories. That sells. Now, you know, first off here, he's wrote tons of books. He's a writer. You know what I mean? So he's known, you know, he's known for the wolfing, the hunger, communion. I mean, like I said, he's a novelist. But I don't, I don't believe him. But that's just me. We'll get into it. Now, about this real quick, before we get into it, just, just real simple quick here. A little bit about Streber. Born in San Antonio, Texas. Son of Kathleen Mary. And Carl Streber, which is a lawyer, 
He attended Central Catholic High School in San Antonio, Texas, educated at the University of Texas at Austin and the London School of Film Technique, graduating each in 1968. He then worked on several advertising films in New York City, rising to the level of vice president before leaving in 1977 to pursue a writing career. So he's pretty successful. And you can tell he's money, 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 you know. But, uh, you know, a few of his short stories were collected in 97 limited edition volume, Evening with Demons. Uh, more recent short stories included The Good Neighbor, which was published in Twilight Zone. 19 original stories on the 50th anniversary. Uh, 2012, The Christmas Spirits. And a modern retelling of Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. So, you know, in in. Anyway, okay, the visitors. Now this is this is pretty much what he was talking to Larry King. Uh, further on in the interview. Now Streber contends that he was abducted from his cabin in upstate New York on the evening of December twenty sixth, nineteen eighty five, by non-human beings. He wrote about this experience and related experiences in communion in his the book of nineteen eighty seven his first non-fiction book. Now, although the book is perceived generally as an account of an alien abduction, Strieber draws no conclusions about the identity of the alleged abductors. He, prefer, he refers to the beings as the visitors, a name chosen to be as neutral as possible to uh, entertain the possibility that they are not extraterrestrials. Now, neurologist Stephen um, Novella remarks that the details of uh, Whitley's tale of waking up seemingly paralyzed does fit the description of uh, hypnagogia. And if there's something in the, you know, medical field, don't kill me here, I'm sorry. A fairly common neurological phenomenon that has been mistaken by some for an intervention by demons or aliens. Now, his hardcover and paperback edition, The Communion, reached the number one. Remember this. Keep this in the back of your mind. His hardcover and paperback editions, <clears throat> both of those of the book called Communion, which includes the visitors and the Whitman Massacre, reached the number one position on the New York Times bestsellers nonfiction with more than two million copies collectively sold. Now, after he published a nonfiction, uh, the book editor of the Los Angeles Times pronounced a follow-up title, Transformation. And in Transformation, that's when he talked more about Whitman Massacre, I guess because all the people talked about he wasn't there. Well, Transformation pretty much tells more in-depth detail that he uh, just remembered that he really was there. So he's just trying to justify and give it a little more credibility. Now, Transformations to be fiction and removed it from the nonfiction bestseller list, but never nonetheless made the top ten of the fiction side of the chart. It's a uh, reprehensible thing, Strieber responded. My book is a true story. Placing this book on the fiction list is an ugly example of exactly the kind of blind prejudice that has hurt human progress for many generations. It's going to be kind of hard, though, to have something that involves aliens, real or fake, that's not going to be 
probably in the fiction section and not in nonfiction. So, now, you know, criticism noting the similarity between the non human beings and Strieber's uh, autobiographical, biograph- oh my gosh, autobiographical accounts of the non-human beings in the initial horror novels were typically acknowledged by the author as a fair observation, but not indicative of his autobiographical works being fictional. The mysterious small beings that figure promptly in cat magic seem to be an unconscious rendering of the visitors, created before I was aware that they may be real. So already, <clears throat> he's having some similarities to other people's books and encounters. So since the 1987 publication of Communion, Strieber wrote four additional autobiographies dealing his experience with the visitors. Transformation, which is a direct follow-up. Breakthrough, the next step. A reflection of the original events and accounts of the sporadic contact he subsequently experienced. The Secret School, in which he examined strange memories from his childhood. And lastly, solving the commune, communion enigma, what is to come. And in solving the communion enigma, Strieber reflects on how advances in scientific understanding since his 1987 publication may shed light on what he perceived, noting, among other things, since I wrote communion, a science has determined that the parallel universes may be physically real and that time travel may in some way be possible. The book is, uh, you know, UFO sightings and related phenomena, including crop circles, alien abductions, mutilations, and deaths, an attempt to discern any kind of meaningful overall pattern. Now, Strieber concludes that the human species is being shepherded to a higher level understanding in the existence within the endless multiverse of matter, energy, space, and time. He also writes more candidly about the um, effects and his initial experiences had upon him while staying in the upstate New York cabin in the 80s, noting I was regularly drinking myself to sleep when we were there. I would listen to the radio until late hours drinking vodka. Uh-huh. More and more is coming together now. Other visitor-themed books of Strieber's include Majestic, a novel about the Roswell UFO incident, The Communion Letters, uh, which was in 1997 and reissued again in, in 2003. It's a collection of letters from readers reporting experiences similar to Strieber's confirmation, in which Strieber reviews a variety of evidence that is suggestive of alien contact and considers what more would be required to provide confirmation. The Grays. It's a novel in which impressions of alien contact are presented through a fictional thriller espionage, narrative, and hybrids. A fictional narrative that imagines human-alien hybrids being born to the modern world. Now, additionally, visitor-themed writings include a screenplay um, for the 1989 film Communion, directed by um, Philip Mora and starring Christopher Walken at Strieber. The movie covers material from the books Communion and Transformation, Strieber has stated that he was uh, dissatisfied with the film, which uh, utilized scenes of improvised dialogue and includes themes not present in his books. Strieber also wrote a screenplay for the novel Majestic, which um, 
the date has not been filmed. Now, Whitley Strieber has repeatedly expressed frustration that his experiences have been taken as an alien contact, which he does not actually know what they were. Strieber has reported um, childhood experiences and suggested that he may have suffered from some sort of early interference by intelligence or military agencies. He was extensively tested for temporal lobe epilepsy and other brain abnormalities at his own request, but his brain was found to be functioning normally. The results of these tests reported to his book, Transformation. <laughs> yeah, um... Look at look at look at look at this. I mean, listen to this right here. This crap. Fiction, the Wolfen, the Hunger, the the Night Church, Ward Day, Wolf of Shadows, Nature's End, Cat Magic, Majestic, Billy, Unholy Fire, The Forbidden Zone, Evening with Demons, The Last Vampire, Lithius, um, Lithia's Dream, Day After Tomorrow, Grays, Twenty Twenty Twelve, The War of Saws. Nigh incidences, critical mass, mega point beyond 2012, hybrids, melody burning, alien hunter, secret of Oridin, Orinda, alien hunter of the underworld, alien hunter of the White House, new. I mean, that's fiction, nonfiction, communion, transformation, breakthrough, the secret school, the communion letters, confirmation, coming global superstorm, key, pass, solving commune, enigma. I mean, dude, the guy's in it to make money. <laughs> Period. I mean, I don't believe a word he says. And what's what's sickening is the whip. What really put me out was freaking Whitman massacre. This guy's—he's a writer. He's good at um, expressing himself, expressing a story to make it sound better. And the way he, you know, Whitman Massacre, which was bad, you know, sad. Families actually lost their loved ones. And for him to sit there and talk about it in his book as if he was there and go into real big descriptive details about it. And like I said, his own mother said that he wasn't even there. And then he reiterates in the second book that uh, it came to him. He really was there. I mean, this guy, to me, this guy's a scrub. He is, he's what makes UFO, anything in the UFO category. Just puts, puts, puts a dark loom over it. You know what I mean? He's always lecturing. Um, you have the mutual UFO network. He's making, he loves to make money. He's a CEO at one time of advertising in New York. He, he's not stupid. He doesn't make the many books he made. To me, this guy's a turd. So, not your usual UFO encounter, but I just wanted to state how much I can't stand this guy. Anyways, let's get into some of this creepy pasta. Um, we'll pick one out that we, uh, it's creepy for the both of us. And, uh, hopefully it don't suck, hopefully it's scary. Alright, enjoy. White Christmas. Living in Lower Alabama, 
It rarely received snow. I spent most of my life wishing for a white Christmas. A white Christmas that never came. I've only seen snow twice in my 33 years here. I always wanted to share that with my two boys. I just knew that they would love to play it now. Now I find myself staring at my window at the mounds of that icy precipitation surrounding my home, regretting every wish I'd ever made for a snow-covered Christmas. When I think about it, it really started in summer. Our summers are always hot and extremely humid, but the year was even more unbearable. We steadily saw temperatures of well over a hundred degrees, and everyone I knew begged for relief. The heat wave lasted all the way until the week before Halloween. Then suddenly, a massive hurricane spawned in the Gulf of Mexico. The weather forecaster for our local news frequently referred to it as a monster. Looking back, I would believe it was more of a demon. A demon that brought hell with it, but much different one than I had read about in the Bible. The storm passed, leaving devastation for miles away. It had affected every state within the southeast, but Florida most of all. Help was sent from various utility companies, government aid agencies, and even regular citizens to help with the relief. When I say various, I mean from every state in our region. It was amazing to see the effort put forth to help the people that had lost everything. I am sure a lot of us thought that was the worst it could get. I wish that had been true, but that was when the rain started. As November came, we felt the first droplets in our tiny town. It was an odd occurrence but not odd enough to raise my eyebrows. I mean, how bad could a couple days of rain be, right? The problem came when days turned into weeks and low-lying areas became flooded. Homes and towns nearby went washed away in a matter of hours once the levees broke. My wife, Susan, constantly thanked God that our house was nestled on a high elevation among trees. I found myself thinking the same thing, but God had nothing to do with what happened. No God I could ever believe in any way. The week of Thanksgiving, the rain finally subsided, and I am sure that was something everyone would say they were thankful for. The problem was, what remained was the cold. That in itself was not strange, but the severity of it was. We saw temperatures close to freezing for the following week, and that was something we rarely saw until late January or early February. My oldest son, Jacob, began singing that silly song by Bing Crosby. My wife beamed at the thought of them seeing snow on Christmas Day. The foolish child of me felt the same. The boys we finally get to see snow, Paul, Susan squealed. I know, I can't wait to see Tommy waddling in it, I responded. Those words ring in my head even now. I have to fight back tears when I think of just how stupid I had been. 
when we were to be occupied with setting up decorations and buying presents that we were oblivious to what was happening all around us. The snow actually started falling the first week of December. It was up several inches within the first day. It was amazing to see at first, but it kept coming. Some people became worried. If you had ever been in the south when it starts to snow, you probably would not understand. You see, we are not prepared for that kind of weather. Everything shuts down, people stay home, and rarely go out driving. I know it sounds ridiculous to anyone else, but that is what happens. It just kept coming. My wife and I had let the boys play in the fresh powdery originally, but when it had gotten so high that I could barely walk in it freely, we decided it was best to keep them indoors. Hardware stores had started bringing in snow shovels to help clear paths. Something that you rarely found in our town. I bought one of the last ones on the shelf as people scrambled to manage the icy foreign invader. Situations seemed to become worse, and small flurries became near blizzards. My wife stayed glued to the news and weather broadcast. It appears the northern states had almost been buried in the frigid powder. The president had actually issued a state of emergency, urging people in the northern port to evacuate south. That was when I finally started to be concerned. These people had been told to come south by our situation was hardly any better. The weatherman stopped trying to be accurate. His predictions of an end to the madness never came. The temperatures continued to drop, and it was not long before we saw them go from zero to negative digits. It was unheard of in my state for it to be the cold and people were getting afraid. Plumbing fixtures began to burst from frozen pipes and people were left without water until they could thaw. Our world became a freezer in a few weeks and none of us were prepared for it. My family found themselves wearing our thickest clothing, even inside. It felt like no matter how high I set the thermostat, it was not enough. We would have left then. By Christmas, we had no power and utility companies had stopped trying to traverse the harsh conditions to repair down mines. Local officials had abandoned emergency protocols to save themselves. We began hearing rumors of our neighbors attempting to head further south into Florida. Now Susan suggested the same, but I reminded her of the destruction still left from the hurricane. I was afraid we'd be worse off without shelter, so I made the decision to hunker down in our home. I cleared a path to the fireplace that had only been used for decoration and set the task of getting a fire going. If it was not for such a dire situation, my wife would have found amusement in me attempting something like that. I had never even seen someone use a fireplace, let alone light one. After several attempts, we were able to burn with little wood that was readily available near our home. My family and I huddled across as if it was going to save us from the fate that waited outside. The witness had engulfed our home. The mounds had risen above the windows, breaking some of them. 
I was forced to reinforce each one to keep the cold out. We sealed every crack or crevice that could possibly let out the heat and tried to remain together. My wife wrapped our children in blankets and pulled them close. The boys did not understand and we were afraid to tell them how serious the situation was. The fear that rested on my wife's face was enough to keep me from ruining what could be our last Christmas. We still attempted to have a big dinner, despite our ability to effectively cook. I also learned how to cook within a fireplace for the first time. It would have been an ex it would have been an interesting experiment if it had not been essential for our survivor at the time. We gave up the idea of turkey or ham, but we had always had a decent stock of canned food. It was a habit I had picked up from my grandparents. I often wondered how they would faring during all of this. But I had my immediate family to worry about. Our world had been plugged into an endless sea of white. I even had a nightmare of this stuff that Christmas Eve. My children normally woke me up early on Christmas morning, but when my eyes fluttered open, I assumed it was still night. The house was so dark that I could barely see my wife lying next to me. I slowly rose from my bed, still clothed and nudged Susan Wakes. The house had become far colder than it should have been. I immediately headed for the fireplace. The fire had gone out at some point, so I ran the back door, pulling on my boots. My aim was to gather more wood to get the fire going again, but... As soon as the door cracked open, I was pelted with a mixture of snow and ice. It stung my face and I cursed the door while trying to shut it again. Our home had been buried in this vicious powder and I finally understood why no light permeated the windows. That's actually permeated and not pre-me. Alright, back to the story. My watch read 9 o'clock, but it felt much earlier. Susan stumbled into the living room, asking what I was doing. I told her what time it was, and confusion filled her eyes. She went for the window, and was greeted with what I already knew. I do not remember ever seeing her quite so afraid, and the feeling was mutual. I buried my emotions down, though. Knowing I had to be strong for my family, I told her to go check on the kids while I tried to get the fire going again. She disappeared down the hall and I made my way to the dining room. The table and chairs had been passed down through my family for generations, but I knew it would be sacrificed. I set to be dismantling the wood chairs first, but was stopped by the sound of my wife's scream. I rushed through the hall listening to the awful sound echo in my ears. I could feel tears forming in my eyes, but I pushed them back as I rounded the corner. She was grasping the door frame of our children's room. We had put them together so that Jacob couldn't help keep an eye on Tommy. I could see her body shaking as she started in the room. Tears rolled over her cheeks as I turned to see inside. The window of the room had given to the weight of the captor. Despite my attempt of strengthening it, snow had buried the boys in the night and that was when I noticed the flakes of white all over my wife's hand. 
Susan had attempted to uncover them. I could see the pale blue skin of their faces huddled together in Jacob's bed. It would have been a sweet scene if it were not for their skin tone. Something Susan would have taken a picture of, but this was not the scene. I pulled Susan away as I tried to hold back the sick feeling in my stomach. I felt though I could release what little Christmas dinner I had in me on the floor at any moment. Soon her sobs subsided, but when I looked into her eyes, she simply looked numb. I have never seen her this way, and I tried to break her from this trance. She seemed to be in, but she said nothing. Her eyes would not even turn my direction when I spoke. Something had broken inside Susan. That morning, I did not blame her. I sat her next to the fireplace and wrapped her in a blanket while I returned to the dining room. The polished wood did not want to burn, but I was determined to give us warmth, so it did not stop until we had a fire. I made it a point to ask Susan to stay by the fire while I returned to the boys' room. I could not leave them that way, but when I reached the door, I found myself pausing just outside. I felt the warm and salty specks across my cheeks before I even saw them. I slowly stepped inside, slid my gloves under my hands and finished clearing away the snow and noticed why they had not simply come to our room. The wood that I had used is still off the window. It struck my oldest first. It left a gash near his temple that would have knocked a grown man unconscious. I could only imagine his ten-year-old body had not lasted long after. Tommy had obviously woken after his tiny form clung to his big brother like a teddy bear. I internally cursed myself for not putting them to bed with us that night, but I knew it was too late for that kind of thinking. I removed their bodies and wrapped them in blankets before placing them in the guest room. I took one final look at their tiny bedroom, a place that had held so much joy previously. I imagined the two of them playing and sometimes bickering. My lips tried to curl upward, but they could not. My eyes drooped to the floor as I turned away the shut door. I have not returned to the room since I doubt I will. I just returned to the living room in hopes of comforting Susan, but when I got there, the blanker all that remained by the fire. A quick search of the house revealed that the back door had been opened and a tunnel had formed in the rigid wall on the other side, leaving the floor inside the covered in the snow. I tried to follow Susan's footsteps, but eventually they disappeared behind a solid wall of that cursed white. I could only imagine her frantically digging through it and sound of what was above coming down upon her body. I tried to dig into it myself in search of her body, but the layer that remained was a frozen solid. It was like digging my hands into the cement, and I knew that Susan could not have survived it, even if my mind did not want to believe it at the time. I found myself picking it up with tools anyway, feeling as though I had nothing left to do. I do not know how much I cried while working at the pointless task, but I do now know it started to freeze to my cheeks. Not his butt cheeks, but his uh, face cheeks. I did not stop until my arms could not lift again, and that it was I sat among the snow and started what my world had become. I have lost track how long I sat there, and when I decided to come back to the fire, I do remember when I started burning the Christmas gifts and how hard of a choice that had been. I opened each one slowly and savored the idea of the children playing with it for the first time. 
He could have seen Susan standing over them with her camera in hand. She would have been giving her biggest smile and snapping away to save each memory. She loved taking pictures, but what I had to, to do did not need to be captured on any sort of film. I started to feel the numbness that night, the same numbness that overtook Susan earlier that day. It was as cold as the snow that surrounded me, and all I could think is it's my fault. I should have escaped with my family when I still had the chance. I do not know if it was pride, ignorance, or both, but the guilt was too much. It consumed me and took away everything this holiday was supposed to be about. I started writing this in the hope that someone reads it, and I do not know what has happened to the rest of the world, only what has happened to me. I do not know how long I can survive here. My food is running low and I have run out of things to burn. I cannot even say for certain how long I've been here since my watch has stopped turning. I still cannot see the sun. I think I will try to dig myself out tomorrow. If you do find this, no, I did not simply give up. I just wish I had done this sooner. I am so sorry, Susan, Jacob, and Tommy. You deserve better than this. And I hope you can forgive me. Sincerely, Paul Richardson. This guy's a douche. What a bad move. Terrible move. So, uh, yeah. Uh, first impressions by uh, you and me. That's pretty depressing. Um. And I have kids myself, actually, which is, which is, uh, coincidental here with this story now like i said now this is pre-planned um it's the first story for both of us and listening right now and talking but we just had uh similar with the lights going freezing rain where i live at we had electric out for you know days at a time and you know i got three kids uh younger so this story really sucked that dad's an idiot i mean it's a hard decision to make. Other than I, my kids slept with us, or like in the same, we went in the same room, small room when the electric went out to conserve heat. You know, but anyways, that was uh not really. It was not a scary creepy pasta. It was more like an absolutely depressing and not ending properly or with no closure ending but that's creepypasta man that's just the way it is so i bet you could be wondering right now uh possibly what the uh movie of review is i bet you're wondering come on now i know you're wondering it is room 1408 if you have not guessed now Room 1408 is, oh, I think it's good. I like John Cusack. I like Samuel Jackson in it. Um, but just to give you a little, just this little plot real quick rundown. Now, Michael Inslin, is he a skeptical author who is estranged from his wife, Lily, after the death of their daughter, Katie? Mike uh, writes books evaluating supernatural events in which he has no belief. After his latest book, he receives an anonymous postcard depicting the Dolphin Hotel 
on Lexington Avenue in New York City bearing the message, do not enter 1408. Now viewing this as a challenge, the Mike arrives at the Dolphin and requests room 1408. Now the hotel manager, Gerald Olin, attempts to discourage him and he explains to Mike that in the last 95 years, no one has lasted more than one hour in the room of 1408. The latest count is 56 deaths. Olin attempts to dis, uh, you know, to persuade him and try to get him, bribe him, and um, but Mike insists that threatening legal action against the hotel if they don't give it to him. Inside the room, um, you know, Mike describes a mini cassette recorder the whole time. Uh, the room's boring appearance, lack of supernatural behavior, clock radio, then suddenly starts playing, We've only just begun. Of course, by the carpenters. Um, digital display changes to a countdown starting from 60. Um, Mike then begins to see ghosts, followed by some flashbacks of Katie and his sick father. He then tries to leave, but then now all attempts are in vain. Um... It was pretty, I like this. It's like psychological too. Um, but he uses his laptop to contact his wife asking for help. Sprinkler system turns on. Of course, short circuits the uh, laptop, blah, 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 blah. But then the room drops to sub-zero. And that fried laptop begins to work again. Um, then Mike appears. It's, it's just weird. He appears... Um, in a video that urges Lily to come to the hotel herself and gives Mike a uh, gives Mike a wink, like a weird wink, like a sly wink. You know, like hmm. the room shakes violently. Mike breaks a picture of a ship in a storm. Water pours from the broken picture. You know, there's various things like that in here. Um, he was assuming that it was just all a nightmare. Then Lily encourages him to write a book about it. When visiting the post office, assume the manuscript is published, he recognizes the members of the construction crew as Dolphin Hotel staff. The employees then destroy the post office all, uh, walls, revealing that Mike is still trapped in the rubble. Then Katie's ghost confronts him. Uh, then the countdown ends. The room suddenly restored normal, and the clock radio sets itself to 60. Now, the hotel operator calls Mike, asks why he hasn't been killed yet, and she afford him that the guests enjoy free will. He can relieve the past hour over and over again and use the express checkout system, which is then a Hagman's noose appears, he, but he refuses to give in. Deciding, deciding to quit running, he improvises a, a Molotov cocktail and sets the room on fire. The hotel is evacuated. After smoking a cigarette, Mike breaks a window, causing a backdraft. Then he lies down and laughs in victory upon destroying the room. Of course, Olin in his office praises Mike for his actions. It's, um, that's the whole plot to it. It's pretty good. Yeah, released in 07, 104 minutes long. Uh, the budget was $25 million, And then they actually, on box office, made $133 million. Um, and if you guys don't know um you know it it is uh, of course a psychological film but it's based off of stephen king's 99 short film or short story with the same name 1408 but um oh 
it was a it was a really I liked it a lot. Um, the whole thing's trippy. You know, the, 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 talking about the uh, the way out. You know, the express checkout system. And it, that's why there's so many deaths in that room. Not because they're killing them, but they're killing themselves. Um, but uh, it, to me, it's a good movie to watch. It's not too crazy, like, you know, extremely crazy. Um, but I think it's worth it. Um, personally, it's not, I got nothing negative to say about it. I love, I love the, the actors, love the actors. And it's a really well put together movie. And, uh, I believe it portrays Stephen King's, uh, short story perfectly. I mean, the best you can do from a movie to a, from a book. But I give it thumbs up, not down, thumbs up. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you enjoyed that you ain't afraid of no ghost. I guarantee that's what he was saying. He was saying that whenever he was uh, in that room. Still, of course, there was ghosts. But I would guarantee he was like, I ain't afraid of no ghost. Guarantee it. You guys have a lovely, great, wonderful rest of your time. And be looking for next episode. See what we can dig ourselves into and... See how dumb I can sound. God bless. Take it easy. And be careful out there. Every story I tell does have a slight grain of truth. <laughs> Later.